Movers, shakers, makers. What makes creative people tick and how do they find and develop their inspiration? Welcome to the podcast that draws back the curtain on the inventive mind and its artistic process. I'm Emma Lister. There are many things an interviewer could ask juggler director Sean Gandini about. He and his partner, Katy Ula Hockala, have built one of the UK's most successful circus companies, Gandini Juggling, which has long been filling theatres and pushing boundaries. An interviewer might like to ask Sean about Life, the company's upcoming piece with the Cunningham Foundation, or their performance on Sadler's Wells' main stage, Spring, a collision of colour, juggling, and the choreography of Alexander Whitley. Certainly, if you've heard of the company, it might be from Smashed, their Pina Bausch-inspired mega-hit that has toured the world. Or perhaps one could ask about the Olivier Award-winning Philip Glass opera Akhenaten, for which Gandini was choreographer. It's a production that has been met with unanimous praise, from the Colosseum to the Metropolitan Opera in New York. But we decided to talk about an earlier piece. A darker piece. A less loved piece. Clowns and Queens premiered in 2013, right after their hit smashed. For them, it is a relatively little performed piece, about 20 outings. Certainly, it has its staunch supporters, however, it never quite found its audience. I had seen it live once, but in preparation for this interview, Sean sent me three videos, an early research and development sharing session in La Breche Cherbourg, an early performance and its final version. We discuss all three versions here. I should make a disclaimer here that I've worked on several of Gandini's pieces as rehearsal director, but not the piece in question today. So, before we dive into Clowns and Queens and its intense, complex world, I begin by asking Sean what his personal circus origin story was. So, I, I grew up in Havana, Cuba, and my parents were socialists who were looking for an alternative to some frustrations they had with their life in Europe. I think they went from anarchist to communist to socialist. <laughs> um, uh, it's the normal pathway, isn't it? The usual pathway. In fact, they met an anarchist club in Geneva in the late 50s. Um, and then they took a, a boat, um, a trade boat, a cargo boat from Canada to Havana because it was the only way you could get into Havana in 1968. Uh, and I was four at the time. And so my introduction to circus was via Soviet circus. It was m my highlight was when the Moscow circus was in Havana and we could go and see the Moscow circus. Mm -hmm. And I have a background in wanting to perform. When I was five, I went to a kind of communist Cuban school and we had to write these essays. What would you like to do when you grow up? And I would like to be a great revolutionary to help the sugar um, production. I would like to fight the evil American empire and help the Vietnamese people, etc. those kind of things. And then I wrote an essay, I would like to be a clown to make people happy and make people laugh. And I remember the headmistress reading it to everybody as an example of this person being slightly wrong. Um, and then when I was about, I used to love magic tricks. Maybe I, I have an Uncle Bob who's an English, Irish-English uncle who taught me the usual kind of uh, French drop with a coin. And so I had a m magic at the back of my head. 
And we were in a taxi in Havana and I was doing magic tricks at the back to my mum, probably to my mum's annoyance. Um, and the taxi driver says, oh, I'm a magician. If you want, I could teach you some magic. And so this wonderful man kind of took me under his wing and brought me to his house and bought me magic tricks, gave me these beautiful homemade, some of which I still have in France somewhere. Um, so that was my pathway into performing was initially through magic in Cuba. And I think I performed magic until I was um, maybe 18 or something like that. And, and all of this was also filtered through the watching of Russian circus, which I'll go, go back to. <laughs> and so then uh, I briefly flirted with visual arts and painting. I did a bunch of quite full-on intense drug-fueled uh, huge canvases with uh, um, which exist somewhere and are quite terrifying. Um, and so I came to London with the idea of... I, I, I then, sorry, had a moment, which maybe this will come back later in the conversation, of seeing a juggling act on French TV when I was maybe 16, and it was Sergei Ignatov. And I've, al I've always, as a sideline, loved mathematics. And so when I saw uh, Sergei's patterns, there was something about the patterns being these very pure geometrical things. And I could always juggle two or three or maybe four balls. I, it's kind of always been there. I don't know from where. But the five, the geometry of five balls, I just had this imperative urgency of learning. I thought, my God, I have to learn to do that. How old were you? I think 16, 17. So I learned to juggle quite late. And then I came to London with the idea of either being a painter, a magician, and I think juggler was quite far down. And then one thing led to another that I ended up in juggling. It sounds like juggling combined uh, many of those things for you. So it is performance, obviously, uh, but it has an aspect of visual art with its use of space and it's mathematical. Uh, so it, it sort of sounds like you found a happy medium between all those things. Um, but you ended up in performing in Covent Garden. Uh, I got addicted then to juggling. I think um, somehow the addiction to juggling grew uh, more acute. And, and I had had a a period in my teenage years where I flirted with various kinds of narcotics uh, and then uh, juggling felt like the perfect replacement for narcotics. Um, mm -hmm. so, so initially the juggling, I didn't have a, 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 a reason for doing it. It just fitted my body and I, I enjoyed the neuro neuromuscular hit from it. But then I started doing like juggling in, in random play. I lived in Catford, London, and I just used to juggle under the big cat. And then I realized people would give me 20, 30 pounds in an afternoon, which at the time felt, to me felt miraculous that people just, you know, it, it was amazing. And then somehow occasionally I'd get 50 and then people say, you need to go to Covent Garden. So then I somehow ended up doing a, a terrible show at Covent Garden. Um, and then from then on, I got to the point where the show w was actually making me money. Uh, and there's something so immensely satisfying about the, the reality of street money is just so uh, tangible. I mean, I, nowadays with the clicking of the card, it must be very different, but counting coins, oh my goodness, it was the best thing in the world. And then I think uh, after working there for a few years, Catty arriving then felt like another big change and bridge to, to the world that we currently live in artistically, yeah. You were speaking about Soviet circus, so it seems your um, like original in was via traditional circus, is that fair? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, completely. But I also, and this, I think my dad is to blame for this. I grew up uh, listening to a lot of experimental music and experimental art and experimental literature. Um, and my dad, fr from when I was seven, he would go, have, have you listened to Ornette Coleman? You must listen to this or look at um, E. Cummings' poetry. Or so, so the idea that you deconstructed art felt like a given to me. It wasn't something where I kind of went, can one deconstruct art? It was almost a fundamental approach to art was that you took it apart. Um, so then when juggling came along, I the juggling I had seen had never been deconstructed or analyzed or reimagined. And, and right from the beginning, both with magic and juggling, I thought, my God, there's another way of doing this. So there's a lot of history uh, to Gandini juggling between Covent Garden and Clowns and Queens. Um, unfortunately, we don't have time to do all of it, but uh, suffice to say, you and Katy end up working on full-length pieces with the multiple performers and collaborators. Um, but um, I, I think if we talk about Clowns and Queens, we need to talk about what comes just before it. Because I think the context of your mega-hit Smashed gives a bit more depth to the conversation about clowns and queens mm -hmm. and what it what it did or what it was as like a mission statement so uh could you summarize the success of smashed so and i know it had a like a long no i i agree with you so so in a way we as gandini we embraced abstraction and had a, a phobia of narrative for many years and Somewhere in there, we opened the door and we did this tribute to the divine Pina Bausch, which is, it's an hour with a hundred apples, seven men and two women, and that's really important. And it has a little bit of the sexual power dynamic that is inherent in Pina Bausch's work. And it deals with quite dark subjects. And for some reason, it just took off for us. It took off a bit like a hit. You write a song that you think... um is trivial and it somehow takes off. And we've performed it 700 times across the world. And w when the ill wind of COVID passes, I am sure we shall return to performing it. So we made Clowns and Queens in the context of having had this hugely successful piece, which in my mind or in our minds, Cathy and I, was quite a dark piece. And partly for me, and I don't know about Cathy, it came as a reaction. Some of the darker scenes in Smashed... This particularly the, the first women scene where Katy and Kim are surrounded by men and the men are more and more nasty, which to me was definitely a, a, a sexual molestation and, and was somewhere on the borderline of a rape scene. And when we first did it, people were laughing. And I found in, in retrospect now, I realize that sometimes we deal with difficult subjects by laughing. And that's a great way to deal with it. It was something I needed to learn. But I didn't understand. I felt like... Um, People weren't getting it. And, and so the starting point of, of Clowns and Queens was to go a lot further. Mm -hmm. And then there's a further thing, which I don't know if now's the time to talk about, which having grown up watching circus, I feel I love circus. I feel like circus is one of the, the great art forms. I, I, I absolutely, it, it's so close to my heart, but it is an incredibly disturbing art form. Um, and it, I feel like in some, in some places, it's very close to pornography. And I know quite a few people have said this. And I know for me, the first time I saw, for example, being a, a, a more or less a straight man, uh, the, the, the attraction, the first attraction I had to women was circus women in 
bikinis gyrating whilst whilst they were being put through dangerous acts. And that's a very bizarre, do you know what I mean? If that's your, and so I wanted to kind of question the eroticism of circus and reframe it and, and ask those questions of what is it that we're looking for? Is it classic Greek tragedy that um, looking at violence uh, and at what point does looking at violence no longer become fun? So I guess that's the starting point. So you sent me several videos of clowns and queens to watch in preparation. And uh, I watched uh, a very early showing that you did in La Breche. <laughs> and uh, I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of theater and almost all of your work. But the rawness of that, um, <laughs> I was sat alone on my sofa and I found myself like laughing uh, as you said, almost as a defense mechanism. Yes, yes, it was that, yes. That laughter yep. in a in a horror movie, you know, <laughs> when when you don't quite know like how to process something. <laughs> I, uh, okay, I think I should set up clowns and queens, and I might mess it up. But no, I'm not going to mess it up because I'm going to quote from your official biography. So uh, it is one of your boldest pieces. It has nine performers, five women, the queens of the title, and four men, the clowns. All of the action takes place against a stark white backdrop, save for five gurneys that can be wheeled around like beds or autopsy tables, and they can also be flipped upright. There are some really extraordinary costumes by Gemma Banks that allude to traditional circus. There's like a ringmaster, clowns, obviously, and a horse act. Uh, in fact, the piece is very much in the world of traditional circus. And here I quote from Thomas Wilson's writing on you in, in your biography. It is a, a quote, investigation of the perversity of circus, it con its concerns with dangerous acts, explicit physical displays, and the pleasure an audience takes in the tension between the success and failure of the performer alongside the sexualization of the performers. So there's nudity, the threat of violence, actual violence, and uh, some Baroque music. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Sounds like a charming evening in. I mean, what um, more could anybody want? <laughs> it is a show with like a very strong feeling or tone. So I wondered if you started with a dramaturgy or with a juggling. No, we definitely started from the theme. This It's one of the... we Actually, I think we made a, a trilogy of pieces. For some reason, our show's a bit like buses. They come in threes. Uh, and we did did one that I think you were involved in called Meta that I feel like was a sort of um, same family. And then we did a show called Blotched, which was also same family. And I would say three. And I also was quite interested at the time in Alexander McQueen's work and, um, and some Belgian experimental uh, fashion people. So we looked at a lot of fashion um, experimental fashion, but actually the description you give is pretty accurate and I, I in some ways it frustrates me on some levels it, it's certainly one of the shows we performed the least I think we performed it about 20 times which is okay in the grand scheme of things but um, I think that in the current market for contemporary circus circus has a very specific social cultural mission and clowns and queens certainly didn't tick that box uh, the poetic, I guess, in France would be that that even if something is a little bit dark, 
it's poetic. And I think this was closer maybe to visual art. I think we, I looked a lot at uh, people that use their body, uh, people like Stella or um, there's an English person that works a lot with blood. And um, actually, I would have almost liked to go further. But when we showed that first version that you saw, which I still have a fondness, Zachary and I laugh about it sometimes. Um, because of the success of Smash, we had about 40 promoters in the room. And there was just this eerie, uh, you know, as a performer, you can tell if something's gone well or it hasn't. And this didn't go well. This just had this icy silence. And a few people said, I quite like it. I just don't know what to do with mm, it. Mm -hmm. So, so I think we did tone, tone the show down, smashed does a hello when you come into the room. So the first 15 minutes of Smash seduce you before you were given the nastiness. And I set myself as a puzzle with Clowns and Queens of starting the piece with something that didn't seduce you. So you come in and you go, bam, here's the badness. And maybe one wasn't um, confident enough as a theatre maker to make that work. What one, uh, I can quote an example of somebody that I thought was very successful in making that work. It's Romeo's Castellucci's opening to Inferno. He has five dogs. He says, welcome to the, although he does say welcome to the show. And then he, he, somebody blows a whistle and he's wearing an anti-dog suit and these five security dogs just go at him for about a minute. And then these dogs leave and he goes, enjoy the show. It's, I think it has a lot to do with the context of what you're expecting to see. So had people walked in, you know, to like an art gallery or an experimental theater or even Netherlands dance theater piece, you know, you might have been expecting the unexpected or, or a dark tone. Um, were the audience like expecting Smash 2? I, I think they were. And I think what you say about context is absolutely right. And, and I think it is something that is extremely difficult. Uh, I mean, if I just can rewind a bit, I think circus is fantastic and circus works. So then I do sometimes think, why the hell are we trying to make it work in a way that it wasn't designed to do. I feel like sometimes we're taking a car engine and making it into an air conditioning unit, whereas actually, the, the, you know, the car works. Uh, and I sometimes refer to it as the imprisonment of circus. The, the fact that you deliver the tricks uh, and, and it, the structure of ta -ta -ta, the crescendo structure. So... It, it, what I would say is in a way one is fighting a losing battle by trying. And I think a lot of times one does, one is successful, but there is also the, the context of where circus is shown. I know, for example, with Sigma, which was our um, classical uh, Indian dance. And I think you had the lovely Sita Patel on a previous episode. Yes, yeah. she was yeah. season one. Um, we did a Canadian tour of it and it's a show aimed at a dance audience. And yet it was incessantly, and I think you were in Hong Kong with the show, it gets sold to kids. I think the word circus is our imprisonment. I mean, it's our own fault for trying to make it something that perhaps is different from the thing it does so well. Yeah. Well, Clowns and Queens was never billed as a kid's show, thank God. No, 
<laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want to be too unfair to the piece. I don't want to just like um, talk about the violence and nudity because there's a really beautiful section right in the middle uh, with more juggling that I think was there right from the start. It's the floor section. So all the performers are lying on their backs and they're doing some pretty intense unison juggling. Uh, do you want to just tell me about the genesis of that section? So, so, so there's two scenes like that. And I think actually they are both, you might know this young man. Uh, he's a young man called Zachary Manisto, who's, who's a rather wonderful juggler with whom we've been working on and off uh, for probably a more than a decade, a decade. Um, Zachary comes along once in a while and plants these beautiful juggling trees that grow into all kinds of beautiful little forests, juggling forests. Uh, and so uh, the, the juggling technique is uh, juggling lying down. And it kind of fitted the, the clowns and queens idea. Uh, yeah being on the floor. So Sacri developed all these uh, quite low. And then um, we researched them, taught them to various things, and they kind of have a neo-erotic thing. Um, but let me stay just on the technique. So yeah, I do actually think from a purely juggling point of view, I think that and the overhead scene are, are the, the, um, the, the satisfying scenes in the show. I think you could, in fact, we, we have taken on a few uh, occasions, just the floor scene and performed it separately without the English eroticism at the end. And yeah. Yeah. So they're juggling three balls, like mostly doing a straight cascade for those who understand that term. Uh, but there are variations on that and they um, they add legs, etc. Absolutely. And the scene um, devolves from this intense order to chaos. Actually, as a lot of the scenes do in some ways. Uh, I'm trying to think if I'm going to prove myself wrong on that later. Uh, anyway, cer certainly that scene does. And, and in fact, that scene in, in, in the show has, has a tipping towards the darkness of the world. The darkness of the world is always implicit in the show, but I feel like that scene really tips it. And there is some horrible sexual allusions during that, which I call English eroticism. And Sakari has a kind of beautiful juggling convulsion that in fact always made his back bleed in the middle of all of that. Um, but it does go from very rigid, very held, and, and it's sort of done in almost kind of um, clockwork orange underwear. Mm, and yeah, the, the droogs. Clock, yeah. And it, it's layered, it has a layering of uh, a metronome with, I, I always say that one should never use Arvo part in shows, but it does have Arvo part, a beautiful bit of Arvo part. It, it used to have more music, actually, looking at an earlier version. Tell me about why you decided to make it more metronomy and, and in general, your approach to music. Actually, I wanted to pare it down. I think a lot of the fighting with clowns and queens was, was either to make it more raw and we had a kind of techno track in the early days. And I, and I felt like we kind of, in the end, we ended up with either Baroque music or there's an incredible composer called Noah Chevesky, whose music gets used twice in the show and that I really absolutely adore. I think he's on John Zorn's Sadik uh, label. Um, but, but, there's a recurring baroqueness, and I think that comes from the notion of queens. I think something that we try to do with the show is a circus absolutely deals with archetypes and symbols. And it's amazing how much culturally we inhabit the world of symbols and absorb those symbols so early on. I mean, I think yourself as a ballerina know how potent 
the, the iconography of, of the ballerina is. And, and the clown image and the disturbingness of the clown image comes into our iconography very early. I imagine most two or three-year-olds have a sense of what a clown is. So, so and queens, princesses. Um, so I kind of wanted to mess with all of that. Yeah. Speaking of archetypes, you solved a little riddle for me because I was wondering what made you decide to tip the tables up. Um, so the, there are these autopsy tables that the performers uh, can lie on and they can be tipped upright. And I made a note that said when they were upright, it reminded me, uh, the performers reminded me of dolls or action mm, figures in a box, mm. almost as though they were being displayed. Yes, like absolutely. An icon. Yes. And, or playing um, card, even the Queens on the playing card. Yeah, yeah. Is that what you were thinking of playing cards? Um, actually, it was initially the, the first idea was exactly what you said, the autopsy table, which in fact, the autopsy table, we had a real one in, in meta. And, and I think that's been a recurring theme. This idea of, uh, partly it came from, it's a reaction to some circus. There's a certain amount of so-called erotic burlesque circus that in a sense is dealing in very classical images of what nakedness is and seduction, which has a place and is wonderful. And it, again, it works. You go and see a beautiful uh, acrobatic body, this robe, I mean, it's perfect, isn't it? Uh, but, but I was interested in, in a colder eroticism. Uh, there's a scene which is one of my favorite scenes and which took a long time to, to crack, which is at one point, Doreen, and this is very Rembrandt, the autopsy, and it comes from, I think, in my mind, a, an old David Cronenberg interview where David Cronenberg talked about the beauty of the inside of the body. We are, particularly now with Instagram and, and, and social media, we are so obsessed with surface beauty, all, all of us, and, and it makes sense. It's, um, and so little obsessed with the inside, I guess, unless you're a surgeon or, um, and so I, I, I almost wanted a little capsule within the show, which was the description of juggling the inner organs of the body. And Doreen, in this quite fantastic Alexander McQueen style wedding dress, has uh, John Audrey almost naked on one of the surgery tables and describes with a penis in her hand the incisions that she would make and how the various organs would be difficult or easy to juggle. And uh, yeah. Uh, and to me, that was a scene that oh, it took so long to get right. But in the final version of the show, to me, it really worked. It's something that I would like to go back to in, in one form or another at some point. You are a constant tinkerer with pieces. Um, actually, many interviewees talked about their work as a living organism and how uh, it can evolve. So as we've mentioned a lot, there are several different versions of Clowns and Queens but I, I actually sat in on the very last show ever in Strasbourg, which had that scene uh, with the organs as a newer edition. And there's at least one other scene that stands out as new. It's a man uh, being stripped naked and humiliated by the women. Uh, I think that was a later edition. Um, I think I know why you put it in, but... I'd like to hear what you say. So, so actually, the if I can just briefly describe, so one of the main scenes in Clowns and Queens is the scene where the women 
take all their clothes off and are on these autopsy tables which are lit from inside with these beautiful flickering neon which Jean Balaud, who's a, a good friend of ours from, from over 20 years, did, a, did an extraordinary lighting design on the show. And they juggle in a more and more chaotic way. Or They start by manipulating one or two balls and then it grows into a, a juggle that where the music, there's this beautiful... Vivaldi Arias, sung by Cecilia Bautoli, that gets eroded by this hailstorm of noise that gradually just takes it. Again, it's what you were describing of going from, uh, um, I guess, beauty into, into pretty hell, hellish, and with the men coming and disrupting. And I didn't want to, again, it being on, it to seem like the women were being taken advantage of. Because for me, it was quite a beautiful scene. But what, do, you, do you mean like the women as performers? Not necessarily the women, but, uh, but the, their characters. Because I, I, I very much wanted the women to have power in the piece. Uh, and so we added a scene where Christelle, who is the dark queen, is quite a powerful dark queen, abuses the mo- maybe one of the most jestery clowns Sakari Manisto, who we've talked about quite a lot. And, um, and it's quite a harrowing scene, but actually to me, it's also quite disturbingly funny. Um, and they force him to take his clothes off and then get him to make animal noises. And then to me, that degradation, the degrading and it, and the degrading of the men. It's mostly the men that get degraded. It comes right at the beginning of the show, so it's it's a constant throughout the piece. Um, sets up the the women when you first see the women naked on the tables. I feel like they have a power that maybe they wouldn't have had if we hadn't had that. That was my my dramaturgical logic. Yeah, that's that's what I thought. So it was there to support the scene with the women. After that, there's a further darkness, which is the liquids which come from the mouth, which is the closing scene. And it, and it's something that, that was recurring in two shows. In Blotched, we also had Blotched. The theme of Blotched was liquid, having liquids. And yeah. So this is at the very end after the chaos and the hell of, of the women on the table and screeching music and this really like intense strobe light. Um, you then have the performers dressed in all white and you have them doing like conventionally beautiful mu- uh, movement to conventionally beautiful music. But black liquid starts pouring out of their mouth, which isn't like conventional, but it's, you know, still beautiful. We played with with doing things in a, most pieces. You should have a redemption on. So that classic experimental French film will have a scene where there's somebody crying in a car with an opera aria. And uh, and I guess that's the comfort of tragedy, isn't it? You've seen the violence and then there's something which elates you. A catharsis. Catharsis, that's the one. And yes. <laughs> the piece pretty unapologetically ends where it started. And as you say, there's not a hello to the audience. It's a pretty dark finish. How how was the piece received? So after the early showings um, in proper performances, it, it, I feel like it had very very mixed reactions. Which in a way, gosh, 
in retrospect in life, when you go, hey, we made this controversial piece, it seems fun. When you're in the middle of it, it's not always the easiest thing to deal with. It's a bit like bad reviews. You think, I don't care what the New York Times says. But actually, they, they, they stab you a bit. And, and as you get older, I do, I, you do get better at, at, at knowing how to deal with. Mm. It comes mm. with the territory. Mm. I feel like it divides. I still, I have messages. I, I know people for whom it's their favorite Gandini show. Uh, and I have people who I know probably would prefer never to have to see something like that again. So, but it, I guess good, good art should provoke. And, and yeah, I, I'm sad that we didn't do it in a bigger, in, in a more diverse performance context. Where you saw it at the end was in a theater where they program a kind of Belgian experimental theater. And there it was no problem. They were like, oh yeah, it's one of those. Um, we we suffer from our prolificness. So because we, when we had Clowns and Queens, we had four other shows on the go. If somebody went to your shop and kind of went, do I want a uh, crucifix dildo or do I want socks? I probably socks are more practical. If you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it got left behind maybe. It's uh, there's been a few shows like that and maybe sooner or later something comes back from, I mean, it's what you were saying about some of the other artists you were talking about that people shows are living. I mean, not everybody's like this, but for us, we, things that get done a little bit get recycled two or three years later. There's an endless growing. And like, for example, what I was saying, just on a very practical level of Sakari feeds us in these beautiful patterns and they grow into ideas that get, uh, uh, learned by other people, somebody adds a little that. It's part of the this organic, beautiful process. What was the lasting yeah. what was the lasting impact of Clowns and Queens on your work? Did it exercise something for you as an artist or was it the beginning of something? I I don't think that anything came after Clowns and Queens, apart from Meta, which we did uh I, I don't think that it it's fed other things. It's at the back of my mind. And I think when the season is right, um, a version of it all will come back through. I'm very happy that we made it. I don't have a regret. And I, the issues that I have with its structure making are issues that I would have with some of our more commercially successful shows as well. Uh, it, it, it's one of the, the shows I'm very attached to. And I'm happy that we, we could have just made another smash at that point, and I'm, I'm happy that we didn't just cash in. <laughs> we certainly didn't cash in. <laughs> so we finish, as we always do, with three questions. The first is... What piece of art changed everything for you? So a uh, piece of art that changed everything was watching Sergei Ignatov do his Monte Carlo juggling routine, which I think, give or take a year, is around 1985, done to Chopin and Rachmaninoff. And there was something particular about the rings to Chopin, the rings just going up and down. There's something very pure. To me, it almost feels like... a uh, abstract American minimal art, one of these Rothko paintings. To me, it was, it, it was, I briefly saw circus as just not the skill, obviously the skill was there, but just this purity 
and then if I have to, that completely changed my life. Um, and Merce Cunningham, pretty much any piece by Merce Cunningham, but Katy and I went to New York to see the final pieces by the final company. And we went every night and, uh, and they had three stages simultaneously. It was very much in the spirit of Merce Cunningham in, in, uh, that it was an event with, with you had to pick what you watched. But if ever I have a crisis or a moment where I doubt what I'm doing, I, I watch a Merce Cunningham piece and everything seems okay. And I have a very raw, visceral relationship to it. I don't know why it is or what it is that I just, um, I can just watch it and I don't think of anything. I just see the pure movement and there's an almost philosophical zenness that comes over me. Why do those two not surprise me? <laughs> uh, is there a piece of art that you didn't necessarily love, but you think still has value? Actually, it, I, I, it's a very difficult question because by definition, one tends to be dismissive of art one doesn't like. And it's very hard. It, it would be a very good exercise to to give voice to the pieces one doesn't uh, like. I, I heard a wonderful, uh, I read a little article by a, a wonderful Nigerian writer the other day, and she was saying about the, uh, the giving stories to, to people, listening to all the stories. And, and interestingly enough, even though she felt the prejudice of European and American people towards African, of, 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 of us in the, in the first world, not having a, African, a diversity of African stories in, a, in our vocabulary. But she was saying that there's a danger in future literature to drown out Trump supporters' voices and their stories to say they are not people. And, and certainly as, as left-wing liberals, there is a tendency to think, well, they're all just stupid uh, and not think, well, what is the complexity of life that has brought this person to that place? And maybe this, if we understood their stories we would so so uh, going along with that i i would say russian propaganda art or, or, or communist propaganda art in general I, I, something which gives me which makes me very worried it is the the movement which i think is coming from a very genuine and, and great place of political art at the moment has a tendency to be very uh um, morally black and white or morally this is right and this is wrong and and to assume that the spectator needs educating so it assumes a moral high horse on behalf of the artist and it assumes that the viewer doesn't know I will educate you and I absolutely despise that I I, I really feel like one should start from a position of assuming that the, the audience is very intelligent and very um, and I feel like Russian propaganda art at its worst is, is really that, the sort of happy, um, happy countryside people, peasants, yes, happy peasants on tractors with a beautiful sun in the background. And there is a danger of some of the political, um, art being made at the moment of being exactly that, the good, the good and the bad. Would you like to nominate um, would you like to nominate an artist for us to check out who we may not know about? I don't know if you, you probably have heard, but I, I have a, a great respect and admiration for Jonathan Burroughs, the dance choreographer who uh, studied at, at, at the Royal Ballet and comes from a, 
ballet background. And if one watches the timeline of his works, he almost, he went from works which were so still imbued in the ballet vocabulary to things which were just about movement, to things where, where he would restrict people to sitting down, to things which are just hands, to things that have only the, the trace of the voice in movement. And I think he's taking a part of the dance language is, um, is a phenomenal and, and admirable, um, legacy. And on his YouTube channel, one can watch, uh, quite a few of his pieces. Good news, listeners. You can watch Clowns and Queens, the whole thing, right now for free. As of this episode's original broadcast in January 2021, Gandini Juggling are putting it up for a limited time. So go to our show notes for the link. Also, you should head over to Gandini Juggling's website, gandinijuggling.com, and their Instagram and Facebook page. They have many, many projects, past and present, that you may want to check out. By the way, Zachary Manister, the juggler who we mentioned a few times in this interview, has had a chat with me in season one of this podcast. So maybe scroll on through and give it a listen. Okay, closing credits. This season of Movers, Shakers, Makers is supported by the Norfolk Arts Project Fund and using public funding by the National Lottery through the Arts Council England. It has also been a makeshift company production. Follow us on Instagram at makeshiftcompany and check out our website, makeshiftcompany.com, where there is a link to the podcast website for show notes. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, if you rate and review the show, it would be most appreciated. Thanks for listening. And now, from the cutting room floor, I give you... I should say, what we haven't mentioned is the show also has these wonderful little penises. Peni? Is it pe... What is the plural of penis? Penis.